You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Scholars organize the text uh, in that way to make it easier for us to read, but I'd like to show how Paul weaves his discourse through this Old Testament story. I believe that Paul's letters are as timely to us uh, today as they were 2,000 years ago, and I think there's much for us to observe and learn today. Let's jump right in. Uh, Verse 8, Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Uh, For some of them, that was their pagan past. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more. First, Paul here is, is, is really stating in verse 8 the foolishness of the Galatians, as we've been hearing about uh, really this whole series so far, why he's writing to them in the first place. He's making the case that if you are known by God, or maybe that's to say that you've grasped the simple gospel uh, and its grace, then why are you not living in that freedom? By way of reminder, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians is to a people who were mostly Gentiles, uh, not all of them, but, but most of uh, the, the Galatian believers at the time were. Um, they didn't have a historical lineage uh, in, or, or knowledge of God, and now they've become part of this lineage through Christ. Uh, and as we've learned uh, in last week's sermon, uh, that uh, about sonship and adoption into this freedom that we have access to, now the Galatians are part of this family. However, uh, as we've also said, uh, some of the, the background, uh, the Jewish background believers, the Judaizers, it was a small uh, sect of people, they're trying to convince the Galatians uh, that in order to be in this family, there's things you have to do. Uh, hopefully you're hearing the, the, the same thing throughout uh, all of our um, Sunday mornings here, that, that that's the theme that Paul keeps cycling back to. Uh, Paul's not disregarding the, uh, I don't think he's disregarding the law, and uh, in his letter, I think he's actually uh, saying that in some cases, for Jewish background believers, maybe it's not wrong for them to keep certain traditions, but for this group, this, this group of Judaizers to force it upon the Gentile believers, that's where uh, Paul is getting frustrated here. I believe that it's a cultural appropriation that is distracting them from the simple gospel. That's what Paul's point here is. We see now that in Paul's letter, he's gotten to the point of maybe pulling out his hair. He's frustrated, and it's a powerful image to see this passion from Paul. He's the man who understood legalism very well in his former life. He claimed himself that above most Jews, he practiced the law nearly perfectly. It wasn't until Christ met him that he realized he was missing the point. We've referred a few times, again, to his conversion story in Acts, uh, that this fervent Pharisee, he even was the son of a Pharisee, he was so passionate at keeping the law, even to the extent of being present at persecutions uh, and even present at the, the killing of people who he believed were against the law, that he must have felt God's grace so deeply in his conversion and could artic- articulate that change really clearly. That's his, his message. How could the people he spoke to, the people who seemed so eager to receive his words, be deceived in these ways? 
bear with me on this one, it could be like working at Dutch Brothers for years, uh, then trying a real cappuccino in Italy, then convincing everyone that they too can enjoy what coffee is supposed to taste like. Then everyone realizes and believes this news, but a month later, they're found in the back of a 10-car line waiting for their 32-ounce kicker. <coughs> uh, I, I'm sure some of you were expecting a coffee joke this morning from me. I promise that's my only one, especially since we're not in the book of Hebrews. Uh, obviously, <laughs> thank you. Uh, obviously, that joke falls short in that coffee is admittedly a relative experience, uh, but like a cappuccino convert, Paul is frustrated that they're living under the law that they have been freed from through the sacrificial uh, effort of, uh, through what Christ did for us. He fulfilled the law completely and freed us from our spiritual slavery. And that's enough. No more law, no more enslavement. We're free. So for Paul, who realizes this completely, and tried to convey it to the Galatians on a previous visit, uh, he's distraught. He finds out that they're thinking it's within their own power to earn something that they already have. In verse 11 here, he says, uh, 11 through uh, 15, he says, I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached to you the gospel at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn me or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Verse 15 says, But then, uh, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and even given them to me. The gospel of Jesus is simple and they're complicating it. They're believing what these false teachers, the Judaizers, are teaching them. That in order to follow God's, uh, in order to follow God truly, there are still things they have to do in order to earn his grace or favor. That isn't true. Paul's making the point, Christ's work is final. Honestly, I think that these verses uh, 11 through 15 here uh, speak for themselves. He's acknowledging the grace that they showed him when he first visited, uh, even though he was a burden to them uh, due to some ailment. Uh, they didn't scorn him. He says they didn't despise him. They received him graciously, even maybe to the extent of self-sacrifice. Many scholars believe that this was some sort of uh, eye issue that he had. He talks elsewhere about needing to write in big letters and that sort of thing. Uh, the main point, though, regardless, because we don't know for sure what he's referring to there, uh, is that he's pointing out they clearly understood and even happily received the message that he brought when he first visited. They believed in his power, and they lived it out through kindness and generosity. But since, they have forgot, since then, they have forgotten its simplicity and started to listen to these false gospels. Ultimately, here, he's defending their freedom. He wants them to stay focused and not sidetracked. I think it's easy for us to be distracted in life and led astray. His really personal plea here uh, is to remind them what he first taught them, that Christ formed in them is the goal. He says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, that we've said so far in every sermon uh, in this series, we've referred to this verse, kind of a key verse in Galatians. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. What does that look like for Christ to be formed in us, to belong to and look like Christ? To be formed into the likeness of Christ is the goal of the Christian life, and now saved, we have this earthly life we still have to live, and having Christ formed in and through us is what what we do to, to have that inward life in Christ so we can then pour out to others. Paul's warning is that these other teachers, these false teachers, are pulling the Galatians to look more like themselves than Christ. That's his uh, sort of polemic style here, or, or his dispute really in this section. He's calling out their dangerous attraction to a personality. We're no strangers to that. At times we can be more enthralled to the celebrity uh, appeal of a person, uh, perhaps more than the actual message that they represent. This is the risk of any leader. For some people, that's really their ultimate pursuit is to, to be the attraction. But even for others, they might start out with good intentions, but they like the attention and the respect that they receive. These Judaizers are trying to convince the Galatians that there are things they need to do in order to be part of their family, but it's for their own gain. It's for the Judaizers' own gain. Paul points that out here in verse 17. He says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Actually, I think it's uh, up here, the next slide uh, is, is the same verse, but from the New American Standard Version, um, seem to write it a little bit different, clarify things a little differently. It says, they eagerly seek you, the Judaizers, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I'm present with you. Zeal for the glory of Christ is never wrong and would even be commendable. Paul says, but these false teachers are seeking their own praise. They aren't sincere in their zeal. It's kind of a throwback to the Pharisees that we had read about in our last uh, gospel series uh, that that's what they were doing. They were attracting people to their passion and zeal that no one else could live up to, but really for their own gain. In reference to verse 17, a, a read quote from John Piper that says, the aim is not to be made much of as a leader, but to draw people into our passion for making much of Christ. Listen, at Hub City, we don't want to win you over to us. Any of us who teach shouldn't be forming you into our own likeness. Rather, we should be formed in the likeness of Christ, as Paul's saying here. We may be conduits of the message, but the purpose of our church is Christ. It's to see him restoring you and for him to restore Albany. I want to look into verse 19, the way he uh, explains, what Paul explains, why true freedom from the law doesn't give way to lawlessness. He says, my little children, for who I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Once again, we see Paul re re referring to that key concept in chapter 2, verse 20, that he's been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer him who lives, but Christ in him. He's living his present earthly life through faith in Christ. 
The internal work of Christ that is having him formed in us should create an outward appearance uh, of, the pres- of his presence in our life, but it's not us making the outward appearance or practice. It's Christ's work alone in our lives. Being formed in him should automatically fulfill the law uh, as Christ had narrowed it down himself to say that uh, the law is to love God and love our neighbors. And we can only do that through the Spirit. I think there's a link between how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And Galatians is Paul's letter really to explain that there's a break in that link to some people and, and some churches. As we'll learn in chapter 5 and 6 over the next coming weeks, the Spirit's fruit in our our life should be evident. Therefore, any attempt to rely on our own efforts, as the Judaizers were wrongly teaching, is not only an unnecessary requirement, but a distraction from the simple gospel, and it creates division. Paul's letter to the Galatians taught them, and I believe can still teach us today, that the freedom we have in Christ unites us across our differences. The Judaizers were seemingly instating a club, not that a circumcision club sounds particularly intriguing, <coughs> but that exclusivity kept anyone who wouldn't comply out. That's not the diverse family that Christ intended with the establishment of the church. That was that Christ's message is for all. Before uh, he jumps into this allegory uh, in the next few verses here, uh, I appreciate Paul's note in verse 20. Uh, that he wishes he could be present with them in order that they grasp his tone. I think we've all been the recipient of, or the writer of a text message that didn't quite convey our true and earnest expression. Uh, And while passionate and distraught, Paul is clearly perplexed about them here out of a deep love and care for their spiritual well-being. It's in this allegory where Paul drives his point home And I want to dive in a little bit deeper to to wrap our minds around the example Paul gives of Paul, uh, excuse me, of Hagar and Sarah. I'll read a few verses here, and then uh, we'll we'll dive in. Verse 21 through 27, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is taken from Genesis 16 through 21, this story of Abraham with Hagar and Sarah. And I'd like to set up some terms in this section to help us clearly understand what Paul uh, means. First, by slave, he's really meaning something more of a house servant, um, someone who was around the family. That's who uh, Hagar was. Uh, she, he, she was Sarah's maidservant. 
this is someone who had access to their space and, and some of the comforts, maybe, uh, but no matter the closeness of the relationship of this person, the slave was not family and therefore could not inherit, uh, receive an inheritance. Secondly, we have the free woman, Sarah. She's not bound by human efforts to fulfill a promise, but simply had Isaac through God's promise. He promised and fulfilled that promise through her, without any effort on her part. Now, Old Testament references uh, can often be complex, and in this case, we're referred to a story that establishes and explains this chasm between being a slave to sin and to the law and being free. In the story of Moses, we read uh, that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and these were really specific rules to follow, and ultimately they they bound people in a, a structure to live up to God's standards as he knew only he himself could offer freedom from. But before then, Abraham and Sarah made this decision really to hijack God's promise of blessing him with a son, and this points out the human condition to seek things in our own effort, and in this case, it was justification that they were seeking. I don't believe that in its complexity it has to be hard to understand. Paul really is just giving a history lesson here. He clearly states that the example between Hagar and Sarah is an allegory, so let's take him for his word and look at this story as a whole. As an allegory, an allegory is an illustration that's used to teach a principle, and right off the bat, uh, we see Paul's purpose here, that there are a lot of contrasts. We have them listed there, slave and free, Ishmael and Isaac, Hagar and Sarah, the present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above, uh, even actively persecuting versus being persecuted. Uh, Starting off this allegory, he says, tell me, as if to call out the people who are claiming to have any authority in the matter. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He then proceeds to tell the story of Hagar and Sarah. Allow me to give a little bit of Old Testament background here as to why this story is relevant to Paul's message. First, Abraham, like many of the Gentile Galatians, was pagan. Before God came to him, he worshipped other gods. He believed in idols and worshipped them. But God came to him and said that he would fulfill a promise through a son. It was a promise of blessings and for land and for the generations to come that God would ultimately fulfill a promise through a son. And by means of Abraham, uh, that would be uh, blessing all nations through him uh, by a descendant that ultimately was the Messiah. Abraham was old, though, and Sarah was old. She was barren. She was unable to have children. Years went by from hearing this uh, promise of God's, and uh, they obviously started to doubt that he would fulfill this promise. They took matter into their own hands, and Abraham married Hagar, who was Sarah's servant, thinking that they could maybe bear a son that would fulfill this promise by their own effort, that ultimately a Messiah would come through through their own efforts. Now in verse 23, uh, we see that Ishmael actually was born according to the flesh, but their own efforts, uh, in their own efforts, excuse me. Nevertheless, Sarah did become pregnant eventually, 
with Isaac, and God still fulfilled his promise that a legitimate son would be born despite their physical inability, despite um, their age and, and Sarah's inability uh, to make something happen on their own as intended. We see that like the Galatians, Abraham and Sarah were starting to take things into their own hands and trying to fulfill their own promises, or in the case of the Galatians, trying to justify themselves through their own actions. Though uh, through Isaac, the promise was fulfilled. One was born of human desire and flesh, and one was born through God's promise. Let's remind ourselves of the context here. Again, in verse uh, 24, we see that uh, Paul writes, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. If you're tracking with the allegory so far, this is about where I started to fall asleep, so if you need to get coffee, you can at any point. Uh, if you're tracking with the allegory so far, uh, let's look at the covenants described through uh, the cities here, Jerusalem, the different two Jerusalems that he mentions, uh, and these mountains. These are really two branches of a family tree, the Ishmael side and the Isaac side. One city is referred to being on Mount Sinai, and that's the representation of slavery, as Paul points out. The human effort to try and earn things in their own actions are stuck in performance. While the other covenant, represented by Isaac and Mount Zion, is a representation of freedom. This is unearned by human efforts. Uh, it's a gift of God's blessing and promise. That's the family that all humans are in on, on either side, but uh, all humans are on one branch or the other of this family tree, Paul points out, uh, really through the, rest of, uh, through the rest of the book of Galatians in the last couple chapters. The, the one branch either that we're, we're on is self-serving, striving to please God and those around us, but really it's just a sort of spiritual slavery, or the branch that receives the grace of God and needs to do nothing else to earn salvation or earn his promise, have this promise be fulfilled. Points that out uh, in quoting verse uh, 54, Paul says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one, more than those of the one who has a husband. God promises to bring us life and make us fruitful. As a Christian, are we wondering, like Abraham, that God will not fulfill those promises? Do we doubt his provision of fruitfulness? Like the Galatians, are we willing to take something into our own hands? Maybe we're impatient. Let's look at what Paul means here in verse 28 through 30 about being children of the promise. He says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. What does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall, inherit, shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman." Really amazingly here, I think that uh, the same distinction we see of a miraculous son of the promise versus Abraham's human effort to fulfill that promise is really maybe a direct image on how the church is distinct from 
the natural descendants of Abraham. It's not a heritage that guarantees us anything today, nor is it adhering to the law and following it to earn something. The church, that is the followers of Jesus, as Paul argues, are children of the promise, saved from spiritual slavery through the miraculous birth, the substitutionary death, and the divine resurrection of Christ. He did the work, and we're free. How does this apply to our lives today? Paul's message to the Galatians is simple, that if everything we have and do relies on Christ and not you, don't fool yourselves by falling back into spiritual slavery, to thinking that it does rely on you. Let me say that uh, one more time here. His message to the Galatians, if everything we have and do relies on Christ and not you, don't fool yourselves by falling back into spiritual slavery to thinking that it depends on you. You are not children of the slave, but children of the free woman. I believe that this begs a response. We can respond a few ways this morning. Uh, first, by singing. We can praise God who gives us fulfillment of promise. He freely blesses us and gives us grace. We can respond by singing. We can, excuse me, I said that already. We can respond by praying, uh, praying to hear God's voice in your life, to discern his promises and be patient. We can ask him to help us be patient, to trust him and not rely on the effort of our own hands. We can respond by giving, giving as a way to bear one another's burdens with those who share in this promise, sacrificing something we've earned to acknowledge God's work. And lastly, we can respond by receiving. This morning, we've learned about surrendering to God and his promise for us by setting aside differences in our past and giving up our own attempts and abilities to earn favor and justification from God, we reflect on the finished work of the cross this morning. By way of expression, I'd like us to actually do communion a little bit differently uh, this morning, and it'll be served up front here. This is a time that we recognize God, uh, we recognize Christ's sacrifice for us. We get to reflect of what he did on the cross, and as we worship, I invite you to file through uh, on either side of, of the stage up front here uh, and receive the bread and wine as a remembrance of his broken body and shed blood for us. It's by that act of a miraculously born son, the Messiah, who lived sinless and died for us, fulfilling the law and the promise that allows us to be in this family. It's not on our own merit, but on his will. You can take the bread and juice back to your seat uh, once you take it here, but I encourage you to consume it with those around you and reflect on this powerful free gift of salvation through his death and ultimately his resurrection.